me for a moment. <clears throat> Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for being able to come here today. We come with hearts that are, in many cases, burdened. We come with hearts that need your healing. But Father, we want to commit ourselves to come with hearts that are listening. And so we take a moment to pause and to do just that. Teach us. Father, we're all here as learners. Father, your Holy Spirit is here teaching us. It's our desire that we would be listening. Father, may my words not get in the way of what you have to speak to our hearts this day. So we look forward to what you're going to have for us. Um, It's our desire to be listening to you when we express that now. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're continuing our series on Don't Waste Your Life. Past weeks we've talked about family relationships. We've talked about marriage, uh, singleness. Uh, last week, Pastor Ralph talked about Don't Waste Your Suffering. And continuing that thought, today we want to take, talk about Don't Waste Your Life Chasing Wealth. I know what some of you are thinking already. Okay, okay, here we go. I'm supposed to be better spending my money. I'm not supposed to waste it. I'm supposed to be a good steward. Yes, true, but we're not going to talk about that today, so you're off the hook on that, okay? Some of you might be thinking, wealth? (laughs) Counts me out. I don't have anything. Don't have to worry about that. Hold on. Talking about chasing wealth. It's different. And that probably pretty much includes most, if not all of us. A while back, in fact, this past week, there was something um, I noticed in the news. It's, uh, there was a charity auction. I believe it's still going on. Individuals can enter bids to have lunch with Warren Buffett, one of the richest men on the planet. He has amassed billions of dollars, given millions away to charity, and this uh, auction is for that. It's for charity. Although the story wasn't so much about him as it was the people who were offering bids. How much would you give for a plate of food in an hour with one of the richest men on the planet? $1,000? $10,000? Last I knew, the latest bid was $2.7 million that someone was willing to give for that. Granted, it's a worthwhile donation to charity, but what does that say about what appears to be an all-consuming pursuit of wealth? We want to talk about that today. We want to talk about our pursuit of wealth. And is Today, as in all encounters, it's our desire, whenever we come and, and, and worship on a Sunday, we, we come to encounter God. We don't want to leave without having said, I met God here. And it might not be through the sermon. It might be through the fellowship. It might be through a conversation with a brother or sister. Uh, it might be through the music. Uh, it might be through the teaching. But either way, we need to go away with a deeper, deeper understanding of who he is and what we need to do in our lives to honor him. That's our desire today as we talk about wealth. Think about this. 
What if I told you there's a new reality show on TV that you could, that you could uh, enroll in? It's, it's kind of like The Amazing Race, um, only it's a prize that was very elusive. It satisfies temporarily, and here's the kicker. You have to give it back at the end of the race. That's what an empty pursuit of earthly wealth is. Just as our topic last week, that topic on suffering, was pretty much universal, I think this one is too. touches each of us. And let me also say this in preface. I think it's safe to say that we all enjoy some level of wealth. We live in America. I understand. There is poverty in America. I know it. I've seen it. I don't want to overlook that, but at the same time, for the most part, the majority, we do enjoy a level of wealth that the rest of the world does not. I've mentioned uh, before um, globalrichlist.com. If you were to go on that, and you can type in your income and see what percentage of the world, where you are in relation to the rest of the world. If you were to, let's say, 40,000 a year, maybe your annual income was 40,000 a year, you type that in, you find out that you are in the top 3% the entire world. 97% of the world makes less money than you do. So when we say in America, we're well-to-do, we are. We do. We have it good here. But Scripture teaches throughout. It's not the amount of wealth that's important. It's what we do with it. Whether it be the $2 in your pocket, the two pennies that were dropped in this bucket, or the $200,000 in your 401k, what matters is our perspective on that wealth, how we hold on to it. So this is for all of us. And I'll tell you what, we'll get to this later, but I, I really believe that of all the obstacles to a deeper relationship with God and a clearer perspective of eternity, the pursuit of wealth is often like a, a stealth computer virus that's lurking on your hard drive. You don't know it's there, especially here in America. So this is for all of us. Well, as we read earlier from the book of Mark, Jesus had a very short conversation. And as it is in the Gospels, other Gospel writers recorded this as well. Uh, Matthew recorded it in Matthew chapter 19. Uh, Luke records it in Luke chapter 10. And then, uh, I'm sorry, Mark uh, records it in Mark chapter 10. And then Luke again in chapter 18. So all three of these gospel writers recorded this. This very short conversation probably took less than 60 seconds. And here's what we can gather from it. If you would, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 10. I'll stay there, but if you'd like to flip back and forth, you can look at Matthew 19 and Luke 18. But there's only two characters in this story. Uh, Jesus and this individual who came up to him. Now, as is good, if you're studying, especially something in the Gospels, it's always good to, to kind of compare and, and see what these stories are. Because as you do that, as you put these three stories together, you discover something. Whereas Mark rec- uh, records that he was a man and that he was rich, we can also add in something from, from uh, Matthew. Matthew 19.20 says he was a young man. And if you look further in Luke chapter 18, we find out that he's a ruler. There's what we come up with the story of the rich young ruler. Probably a ruler in the sense of of a Jewish religious leader. That's the best that we can gather. But this individual came up to Jesus 
running up to Jesus as he was about to leave town. Now, what we'll do is we'll just take a few moments and go through these verses. Like I said, it was probably a conversation. It took less than 60 seconds, but let's look at it first. It's always good to make some observations. It's a narrative, so there's not any neat outline that we in our Western minds like to dig out of that. Sometimes we like to have an outline so we can remember that. That's very, this is very non-Western. It's a, it's a narrative. So we'll just simply tell the story. And after we've looked at the story, there are some applications that we can draw out of it. So that's how we'll do it. Let's look at verse 17. There are just two characters, Jesus and this individual. And he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Now, already, if you're sharp, you picked out that, that first question, wrong question. Right? And Jesus, you notice, Jesus didn't jump on him for that. But already he said, he's got the wrong question because he says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The easy answer for that, we know you can't do anything. See, we as human beings are, are very much doers. You've got to earn it. You've got to do something for it. That's what gets us up in the morning and goes to work because we get a paycheck. He's, want, he's wanting to know, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? It reveals his superficial view of what it means to please God. It's not about behavior management. Sin is an inward attitude that comes from rebellion against God. It exalts man, defies God. And quite frankly, it's evident in believers and non-believers alike. But this is a straightforward question. Now you notice in Mark, and if you were to read through the rest of Mark, um, you would see that there were many encounters that Jesus had, and some of them with Pharisees, and sometimes they purposely had questions in there just to trip him up. That was not the case here. This is a young man who des- he just desperately wanted to know, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? No, I'll tell you your motive here. And as you also notice in Mark, if you were to read through, you'd see that many of these encounters that Jesus had with people, he has disciples standing nearby. See, he just had three short years here on this earth. And at the end of those three years, he was going to hand, hand over this kingdom speak to these individuals. And so everything that came along, he used as a teaching opportunity. If you look at Mark, even the miracles, whatever it is, he had his disciples there and he would pull them aside sometimes and say, see, here's what this means. Or sometimes they would say, huh, what's that about? Uh, But he used it as a teaching opportunity and he uses this one as well, as we'll see later on. Well, verse 18, rather than giving this young man a straight answer, which... (laughs) He wanted, this is, this is a, a person who said, I want, here's the question, what's the answer? And Jesus said, hold on, let me ask you a question. He said, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. See, the proper way to address a rabbi was to call him teacher. If you added the word good, especially in the Jewish context, you were implying deity. So whether this young man knew it or not, he was in essence saying Jesus was the Messiah. So Jesus stopped him on that and said, hold on, why do you call me good? There's no one good except God alone. See, if Jesus, Warren Wiersbe says this, if Jesus is, the only, is only one of many religious teachers in history, then his words carry no more weight than the pronouncement of any other religious leader. But if Jesus is good, then he is God. And in doing so, indicated God as the source of the answer that this young man was looking for. And he continues, still doesn't give him a straight answer, still, still 
draws him along purposely because he wants to find out more about this person. And he says, well, you know the commandments. Verse 19, you know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your mother and father. See, Jesus knew where where he was going with this. See, for the Jews, for thousands of years, this was the basis of their relationship with God. Was their uh, following the law meant that God would look down on them with favor. Jesus is not teaching a salvation by good works. He is simply appealing to the Jewish mindset here, getting it in context. He introduces the law into the conversation not to uh, show the young man how to get eternal life, but to show him what he truly needed, and that was for God to save him. See, in Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is very clear. He says, the purpose of the law is to show us how far short we are of, of obeying the law. It, the, the law, by the law, uh, by the law is the knowledge. Three twenty. Jesus is not teaching that this is how you become saved. He's testing this young man, forcing him to examine his own heart. As we see later on, he came up short. He truly could not love God with all his heart when he was holding on so tightly to his wealth. He names six of the commandments. Now, this isn't meant to be comprehensive; it's meant to be representative. So he names just six of them. They all have to do with relationships, and the young man knew the commandments well. And Jesus named those six, when actually, if you know this, I've seen one source that says, uh, especially the Pharisees at that time, had a list of no less than 613 commandments that they were expected to follow. I have a hard time with just those ten. Okay, the Ten Commandments, 613, including all the dietary laws, all the feast laws and everything like that. That's what the Pharisees were expected to obey, 613. So this guy is asking, okay, I've done that. What else do I need for eternal life? He's in verse 20. He answers that teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. He's not bragging. He's still searching. Now, keep in mind also, this is a respectable young man. Okay, this is, this is someone that we would call an upstanding citizen, a businessman, a good person. He had all of that together. But see, his emphasis was on external conformity. That's all he knew. Jesus' response, verse 21, and Mark is the only one who records this. Um, but Mark records that Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Isn't that neat? Because he didn't look down on him with pity. He didn't go at him with irritation or say, you're so arrogant. He loved him. He didn't know him. Mean, he wasn't one of the twelve disciples. He was just some man who came running up to him. And it's, it's coming from me. Perhaps you have this in your life. Uh, someone who may not know Christ. And you're praying for them. And you can know that God loves them. And sometimes, at least for this person, you know, he, was, he was a good person. Some not so lovable. God still does. He loves him. He says you lack one thing. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. You lack one thing. Now, at that point, probably the young man was saying, good, out of all those 613, that's not bad. Just one thing. And so he's holding there with bated breath, wondering, what is it? See, his, in his mind, okay, in this unsaved person's mind, He was interested in eternal life, in doing something in order to add to his portfolio. Had everything else covered. All his ducks in a row, if we were to say that. 
And so he was looking for this relationship with God or this, or this uh, eternal life thing as simply something to add to his portfolio. We'll get more to that later when we talk about application. And Jesus says, you lack one thing, sell everything you have. Can you imagine that young man's face? I lack one thing, and Jesus says, sell everything you have. Oh, can you imagine that? It's like, oh, wait a minute. Does Jesus even know how much I own? The man was very rich. And Jesus said, sell everything you've had. He's probably thinking, I've built my adult life around acquiring property and being a good person. I can go on being good. But sell all my possessions? Can't do that. Jesus isn't done. Verse 21, and give to the poor. Now, a good Jewish person would have no problem, it's one of those 613, of giving alms to the needy. That was part of what was expected in the Jewish religion. But all of his possessions to someone he doesn't know or trust, who didn't deserve it, who would probably mishandle it, that's not only illogical, it's foolish. It's financial suicide. But Jesus said, give to the poor. You see, all through the Old Testament law and prophets, we hear God's heart for the poor repeatedly. God wants his people to share his heart for the poor. Generosity, non-judgmental compassion, love, empathy. The law clearly instructed God's people to be generous to the poor. And Jesus isn't saying... Oh, you missed one. Give more alms next Sabbath day. You know, budget your money and tithe generously to the church. He said, give everything to the poor. And he still wasn't done because here's the core, the very central part of what Jesus wanted him to hear. Come, follow me. But see, Jesus knew he couldn't do that without the first part, letting go of what he had. That's the invitation. And I'm sure the disciples standing nearby, this is, remember this is like Peter and John, remember that earlier on in the, in the Gospels where Jesus said, come follow me, and they dropped their nets and everything and, and followed Jesus. So I'm sure they heard this, and he said to the person, come and follow me. That's the invitation. Earlier on in Luke chapter 9, Jesus told the people, deny yourself, take up your cross daily. The cross was the instrument of execution. Take it up daily and follow me. That was an invitation not to your best life now, but to a life of present suffering and future reward. This was a more radical 180-degree turn that shifts from pursuing wealth to pursuing Christ. And taking this first step toward following Jesus meant a 180-degree turn from away from all that he had. But look what he did. He turned all right. But he turned away. Disheartened by the saying, in verse 22, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Maybe he wanted another commandment. You know, just give me another one. Add it, make it 614. That's fine. You know, be, uh, be kind to children or pets or something. Something easy like that. Anything. But having to part with the wealth that he had worked so hard for. That clearly was not the answer that he was expecting nor wanted. So he turned away. In doing so, he turned away from the greatest riches and security that anyone could ever possess. And in doing so, he also broke at least two commandments. The first being, you shall have no other gods before me. He did. 
And another one being, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, not part of it. Apparently, if you took away this man's riches, you took away his identity because that's who he was. He was not just a man. He was a wealthy man. It was who he was. Today, sometimes we hear about um, suicides of, of, of wealthy individuals who have everything, but when they lose their wealth, they just can't take it because that's all they are. That's what he feared this individual was as well. Well, very quickly, we can't, we can't spend a lot of time on this, but you have to see where, where Jesus stepped in and said, now, I want you to learn something. Because in verse 23, Jesus said, looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. In verse, 20, uh, verse 24, the disciples were like, what? Now, here's another part where they say, I don't quite get it. Help us out here, because they were amazed. And Jesus repeated himself and says, how difficult it will be Children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to, to get into heaven. Now, probably at that point, maybe even there was one nearby, but a, a camel was a huge land animal. The eye of a needle something extremely tiny, and Jesus is using this simply as an illustration and an observation. He's not saying it's impossible. He's saying it's easier for a camel to get through an eye of a needle than it is for a rich person to get into heaven. Now, verse 26, the disciples, see, verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words. Verse 26, they were exceedingly astonished and said, Who then can be saved? If it's easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich person to get in heaven, who can be saved? Notice Jesus answering this. Because too often we just stop there. You can't stop there. You have to look and see what Jesus' answered is. Verse 27, Man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. Wow. See, we think that, oh, it must, it's hard for a rich person. It's hard for a poor person to get into heaven. In fact, he can't do it on his own. That's the whole point of what Jesus is saying here. Not only is it hard for a rich person to get into heaven, it's hard for a poor person because you can't do it by yourself. It's a work of God. It's a work of God for you and me to be able to get in heaven just as it is a rich person. That is possible with God. But that's what Jesus wanted to point out here. And say, yes, it does seem. Because they asked, who then can be saved? And quite frankly, no one can apart from God's saving grace. Rich or poor because it is God is the one who does the saving. Well, there's some applications here. I want to take a few moments and see, so what? What does this mean? We just looked at a, just a narrative, just a few verses. Like I said, it's a 60-second conversation. What can we learn from this? Well, first of all, this has to do with salvation. Salvation comes through faith in Christ, trusting him and making that 180-degree turn. And we have to understand that that's what salvation is. It's, it's almost like it's a leap of faith where you're letting go of whatever it is that God wants you to let go of. Now, we come to this passage and some would say, well, you have to give everything up and give it away to the church or something. That's, that's a very sorry misinterpretation of what this passage is. This passage is saying you've got to let go of that and turn to God. The emphasis is on following Christ. It's kind of like this, like this illustration. I'm sure you've seen, maybe been at a circus or you've seen um, on TV or something, you've seen the flying trapeze artists where they swing on these long swings back and forth. And they'll do all kinds of tricks and flips and everything on. And then another one comes along, and they're swinging together. And I don't know how they do it, but it's amazing because they can all do all kinds of acts and, and everything. And then at one, some point, the person, one person who's swinging, you know, regularly, 
um, the other person will jump and let go of the swing that he's on, he's on, grab onto that person, and then together they do all these these uh, acts and flips and everything like that. That's what salvation is because it's a leap of faith. But first, you have to let go of that swing. You get that? See, we want to we want to do this, but I, I, I you know, these find whatever it is, whatever it is, it might be wealth, it might be something else for somebody. They don't want to quite let go of that, and it's not going to work that way. Okay, if the trapeze artist is saying, I'm going to swing, I'm going to swing, I'm going to catch this person, but I'm going to hang on to this, uh-uh, something bad is going to happen then. You have to let go of that, grab that person, and that person in, in the person of Christ we can completely trust on. Completely trusting in Christ, but we have to let go of this. And that's what salvation is. That leap of faith is saying, I'll let go of that. It's a decision. This young man turned away and said, no, I can't. I can't trust that. I need this. And he hung on. Salvation is not about us doing. It's not about us keeping the commandments. It's about what God did. It's not about adding something to your portfolio. Quoting again from Warren Wearsby, The rich young ruler is a warning to people who want a Christian faith that does not change their values or upset their lifestyle. Let me read that again. The rich young ruler, it's a warning to people who want a Christian faith that does not change their values or upset their lifestyle. I want to add this church thing in. I've got everything else covered. I've got my 401k. I have my home. I've got my bill pays up, bills paid off. My kids are good. Now, something else I'll just add into this, the church thing. I'll come to church every Sunday, and I'm good to go. That's not Christian faith, people. That's just adding something into your portfolio and saying, hey, I hope this is good enough. No, following Christ means you leave that stuff and you follow Him. Very, very different. And it saddens me because I know I have friends, I know people today that somehow think that they are Christ followers. And you see their lives and you see how they're hanging on to things and think, no way. They're trying to do that trapeze thing and hang on to both. Doesn't work. It doesn't work. Proverbs 11.28 says, Whoever trusts in his riches will fall. One thing, this one thing for this young man was the obstacle in his life that prevented him from trusting God for salvation. It wasn't the wealth. It's not preaching against wealth. God has allowed some believers to be extremely wealthy. It's hanging on to it. And again, it's hanging on to those two pennies you drop in the bucket or the 200000 in your 401k. It's hanging on to it that I'm talking about or chasing it. Well, that's for unbelievers. Well, is there application for believers? I'm glad you asked. Yes, there is. See, as believers, we are not yet fully sanctified. You know the three tenses. Uh, salvation, uh, salvation past, salvation present, salvation future. Salvation past is the finished work of Christ on the cross. It occurred when we stepped into uh, eternal life with him by accepting him as our personal savior. That's salvation past. Salvation present is we are being sanctified. And just as it was a work of God entirely to bring us into salvation with him, it is a work of God now as we are being sanctified. He is working in us. That's the present tense. The pre- present tense. The future tense is we will be saved uh, when Christ comes back and we'll be with him in eternity. But the here and now is what we're talking about today. We're to be sanctified. And quite frankly... I think when, uh, in our culture especially, 
a very socially acceptable sin is, allow, is the sin of allowing my pursuit of wealth to influence me rather than my pursuit of God. Sadly, I really believe that. And when I say socially acceptable, we don't even notice it. We don't even notice it sometimes. It's one of those sins that creeps in, and we've got all the other bad things, you know, the vices. I don't, have to worry about, I don't do those. Okay. What about this one? What about my pursuit of wealth? Or whatever. It might not be a pursuit of wealth. It might be a pursuit of something, happiness, whatever. Whatever that pursuit is, it cannot overshadow our pursuit of God. 1 Timothy 6.10. Paul writes to Timothy, who is a leader of a church, uh, and so he's writing to believers. Timothy tells Timothy, the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. 1 Timothy 6.10. And then later on, in 1 Timothy 6.17, as for the rich in this present age, now again, Paul is writing to Timothy, who is a leader of a church, and he's referring to the people who are rich in that church. It's not the wealth that he's talking about. It's about holding on to it. He says, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Never said or sang, Jesus is all I need. Do we even know what that means? See, faith in Christ means a complete trust in him. He's the object of our faith, not his ability to provide me good gifts. Big difference, but we get that messed up a lot of times. Christ is the object of our faith, not his ability to provide me with good gifts. And, and these are good things, financial stability, good health, etc. See, he loves to give good gifts to his children, but we run the risk of misplaced faith if our trust in him ends when the gifts stop coming. He should be the object of our faith. See, I fear that even though at that point of salvation... When we turned from seeking the things of this world to the things of Christ, the danger was and is always still there, the love of wealth oozing and creeping back into our lives like a cancer that needs to be removed. Believers we're talking to now. Believers. That cancer can take over and consume us even though we are Christ followers. This story teaches whatever measure of wealth God has allowed me, its influence must never surpass the influence of God in my life or whatever blessings that God has allowed me. So what do we do about this? Well, understand this, the Don't Waste Your Life series, the whole series that we're doing. It's the progressive removal of things in our lives that prevent us from wholeheartedly following Christ. If you were to read through the book of 1 John, you come to a very strange little verse at the very end. In the midst of all that John is writing about loving one another and everything, all of a sudden he comes to the end and says, little children, keep yourself from idols. That can happen in us, in our lives. And especially in America, I, think, I don't think we realize it. The things that we pursue and how we pursue it and why we pursue it, our motive for doing it. And John says, keep yourself from idols. I think one of the most significant things is our attachment to an unhealthy pursuit of wealth. 
You may have heard of um, an organization in, in Philadelphia called The Simple Way. I don't know if anybody's heard of that. It's, it's a, well, organization. It's loosely called an organization. It's a group of individuals who are pursuing Christ and doing it in a very unique way. They live together. They all pool their money together, and they basically live in a very poor uh, community of Philadelphia, and they share with their neighbors, and it's also a high-crime area in Philadelphia. Um, the simple way it's called. And Shane Claiborne is, is kind of the instigator. I wouldn't even call him a direct. He's not, it's very loosely organized, okay? And um, he wrote this. He wrote this about uh, their presence there in Philadelphia. When Jesus speaks of fear, he talks about how we can fear those things that can destroy our bodies like guns and knives. But he says we should, we should fear all the more those things that can endanger our souls, and those are more subtle dangers, the suburban demons, insulating, like insulating ourselves from suffering or cluttering our lives with possessions while others live in poverty. These are the things that can destroy our souls. And we've talked before about being simply avenues of God's grace. The money he gives us is meant to be simply passed on from us to whoever needs it for his glory, meaning sometimes we give it away. It's not to say that we should turn our back on sound principles of stewardship and saving money for the future. What matters is the degree to which we have made this our focus and our motivation for doing it. And just as Jesus was challenging this young rich ruler to examine his own heart, he challenges our heart as well. In Piper's book, don't waste your life. He writes about the fact that giving is necessary not just to support the worldwide enterprise of spreading the gospel. We often give with that mentality, thinking somehow we're doing that. And we encourage that. We need that. We just had Renee up here today talking about that, how we can be a part of that. However, it's more for the health of the church. We need to be giving. Picture a stagnant pond versus a flowing stream. It's our, to our health. It's to, we, we need to be a giving church, giving people. And in the same book, he writes, and I know this quote has been read before. I want to read it again because it's so good. The world is not impressed when Christians get rich and say thanks to God. They are impressed when God is so satisfying that we give our riches away for Christ's sake and count it gain. See, if all Christians, if all we were to do is, is, is address the pursuit of wealth or our mishandling of it or whatever, we're really only dealing with one symptom of a much larger issue that has to do with our relationship to God and our understanding of Him. Picture this. Suppose you, had, suppose you went to the doctor and found out that you had a life-threatening illness that was curable with the right course of treatment. And as you leave the doctor's office, you see the prescriptions. They, they are simply things to deal with the symptoms. You say, hey, wait a minute. Isn't there much more to this? And that's why we can, only, we can say about this pursuit of wealth, that's only a symptom. There's something much deeper. Because you can't just simply stop pursuing wealth. You know where this comes from? This, this stopping pursuing wealth, it comes from a pursuit of God himself. That's what we know very little about. That's why we pursue all these other things, because we don't know much about pursuing God. I tell you what, if you went or I went deep in our pursuit of God, we would then look at our wealth and say, what's that for? 
because He is so satisfying. That's what we need as believers. And again, I'm speaking to believers this morning. That's what's needed. It's not so much preaching against the wealth or against the pursuit of wealth. It's talking about our need to pursue God and God alone. And I don't want to leave you with that and just say, oh, good, uh, uh, how do I do that again? Listen, very four practical things. You already know this. I already know this, but I have to be reminded of it. We have to spend time digging deeply into God's Word on our own. That's something that has to be a regular thing in our lives. And I don't mean, and sometimes we call this devotions, I don't mean on your way to work, listening to the radio in the car and saying, I had my devotions today, I listened to so-and-so on the radio, friend, that's not devotions. I'm talking about digging deep. Pull out your study Bible. Come away with a, more, a lot of questions. Study. Memorize. Secondly, we have to be in prayer consistently. We have to be praying people. Not just, again, not just a a quick prayer here and there, uh, but spending time, making a list, being organized, whatever you have to do, and sometimes that involves listening. I don't know if you've ever done this before, but come to God with your list, and all of a sudden you realize he's there saying, stop, I have something to tell you. Prayer is two-way communication. Reading, there's prayer. Um, There's fellowship with brothers and sisters in Christ. You can't do this by yourself. It has to be something that you do alongside. That's one one reason we, we come together on a Sunday morning, this fellowship. That's one reason we have the small groups, the mosaics, is to have fellowship with, with one another. We need that. We, God made us to need one, one another. And the fourth thing is, is, is ministry. Do something. You know, what good is it if you just soak all this in and say that's nice and go on your way and actually don't do anything with it? It'd be like going to a, to a fast food place and seeing somebody with the, with the uniform on that works there just sitting there not doing anything. What are you here for? I fear sometimes that's what we have in our churches. They call themselves Christians and they put on the uniform and you say, what do you do? Do you actually do anything? Ministry has to be a part of our spiritual growth. It's not just to help people. Oh, I'm doing this so I can help that person. No, 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 no. This is so that you can grow and honor God. That's why we do ministry. So those four things, when I say, when I say the pursuit of God to replace the pursuit of wealth, that's what I mean. And doing that consistently will start us on the path of going deep. To put it in a positive light, think of the incredible, eternal prospect of a life worth living. For Christ, that is, the stark contrast between the disciples who chose to follow Jesus and the impact on the world. Think of that. They were standing there listening to this conversation. Think of the impact that they had on the world in the years to come. As contrasted with this one individual who had so much wealth, so much power, and he turned away. Where is he today? This is not a parable. This is a real person. I fear that this person is probably suffering for eternity in hell, separated from God, because he turned the other way instead of turning to follow Jesus. What do you have to let go, to, let go of to follow Christ? might not be wealth. might be something else. Our series is don't waste your life, and a wasted life is a life consumed by the pursuit of earthly wealth. Let me give you a quick definition of life. We say don't waste your life. Life is the time God gives you to determine how you're going to spend eternity. I'd like the worship team to come up at this time as we begin to prepare to close. And as we do, I'd like the prayer counselors to come as well. Maybe you're here today. You'd like to make that hard choice of following Jesus. Please come and pray with one of our prayer counselors.
Or maybe there's some encouragement you as a believer need and would like someone to come alongside of you and pray as well and pray with them. Would you bow in prayer with me? Our Heavenly Father, we do thank you. It's a privilege to be able to serve you and to understand you, and it's our desire. We express our desire to follow you and not this empty pursuit of wealth. Thank you for your words from the book of Mark this morning. Thank you for the opportunity to know you well and to go deeper. We express that as our desire this day, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.